0: That was the case, the most recent investigation into UNC 3313. The management socket published some reports, and the customer had identified that there was lateral movement, evidence of remote command execution, and
1: multiple systems had been infected, and they engaged our team to respond. When I started working with Ryan on this, we pivoted on a few indicators that we got from this incident, and we kind of hit up on an IP address that was previously used by on 3313. So this was a server that they had used previously, uh, and you know, some of the other uh, engagements that we have seen. And, you know, and this is the same IP address, and that's where the kind
2: of puzzle pieces started falling in place, where we saw the initial compromise with screen connect hosted on a OneDrive link, right, delivered through a spear phishing message, the targeting lined up the DDPs lined up. So that's when that on started building out. And we call it UNC 3313. We haven't attributed this fully to Tempsagros, but the, the overlaps there are notable to the extent that we can assess with moderate confidence that it's related to Tempsagros.
3: Welcome back to another episode of Mandiant's Ion Security Podcast. I'm your host, Luke McNamara. Today, we are discussing a recent blog put out from several teams here at Mandiant and some interesting research that they've been doing. It's a, a blog entitled Left on Red, Telegram Mauer Spotted in Latest Iranian Cyber Espionage Activity. And who better to dive into this and provide a little bit more background than the blog authors themselves. So I have joining me, Brian Tomsik, Emil Hagebert, and Tufel Ahmed to discuss this. Good morning and uh, great to speak with all of you.
1: Yeah, thanks for having us, Luke. Happy to be here.
3: So I think, Ryan, probably the, the best place to, to kick us off is, is with you. And you know, reading through this blog, it's a really interesting story. There's a lot we want to get into and dive into this threat actor, what you saw in this particular investigation, their operations, their capabilities, et cetera. But maybe to start us with, how did this come to you initially? When, you, when this kicked off at, a, at an MD customer and you got pulled in, what were you initially looking at and what were kind of your initial questions in looking at this, this threat activity?
0: Yeah, just to provide a little bit of background, I work on a team within Mandiant Managed Defense called Advanced Analysis, and one of our primary responsibilities is to serve as an escalation point for customers who want a dedicated incident response lead to manage the technical aspects of an investigation and help rapidly respond to contain an incident as quickly as possible. Uh, One of the most common pathways that customer engages the AA team is when they receive high severity reports from the management SOC, uh, and then they kind of recognized the need to initiate a coordinated response. Some of the alerts associated with the reports, uh, there had been some credential harvesting activity, a dumping of LSAS to harvest credentials, exporting registry Hive files, again, to harvest credentials, trying to escalate the privileges. Uh, so based on the initial reporting, we knew from the outset that the attacker uh, was still in, kind of in that early phase, moving laterally, performing some reconnaissance and trying to harvest useful credentials to uh, escalate their privileges.
3: And we should note too, this is mentioned in in the blog, but this activity initially kicked off back in November of last year. And this was at a customer in the Middle East. I don't know if you want to characterize them anymore beyond that, specifically kind of the sector or kind of what their area of focus and activity was.
0: Uh, Yeah, the, uh, the customer is a government institution based in the Middle East. Gotcha.
3: So we'll, we'll get into a little bit more about this particular threat actor onc 3313. But I'm curious when you're doing that initial investigation, you're pivoting out from that starting point. Did you have a sense at that point, sort of who that threat actor was that you were dealing with? We'll get into some of the malware as well, that, that was kind of interesting. But was there anything there that stood out or was a hallmark to you of we could potentially be dealing with this sort of threat actor? Any sort of sort of the usual suspects that popped up in your mind and looking at this?
0: Yeah, great question. I think based on the customer, your mind immediately jumps to who the adversaries are. The most common adversaries are that would be targeting this particular customer. But you enter into the incident with a blank slate. Uh, you just kind of follow the evidence until you kind of gain enough of a uh, of the context of the attacker's activity to you know work with the threat intelligence team to uh, make that attribution.
3: So let's talk a little bit more about that. I guess maybe the malware specifically, uh, and Tufel, let, let's bring you in here. That's kind of, I guess, one of the interesting components to, that it seems like led you to, to writing and putting out this blog publicly are, you know, a particular piece of, of the malware that was utilized here that was leveraging the Telegram bot API. But walk us through some of the different tools we saw this threat actor employ in this environment, because there's a number of of different ones, some public publicly available tools, some modified tools, and some of the ones that appear to be unique to this threat actor.
1: Sure. Let me first, you know, give a quick and big shout out to our members of our Mandiant flare team, uh, Mike Hanoff and Nick Harbor and Mohamed Omer, who, you know, so to speak, deciphered these malware for us so we have a better understanding of their inner workings, right? So initially what we did was, you know, when I started working with Ryan on this, we Pivoted on a few indicators that we got from this incident, and we kind of hit up on an IP address that was previously used by Ang thirty three thirteen. So this was a server that they had used previously, uh, and you know some of the other uh, engagements that we have seen, and you know, and this is the same IP address, and it was an open directory hosting some of the same malwares that we were seeing in this engagement as well. So that led us to, you know, some of these tools that they have used and some of the malware families that they were using. And, you know, mm-hmm. we kind of attributed it to this group based on, you know, it still continues to be used by the same group and based on some of the malware families we've seen and the, some of the common tools that we had seen this group use before, like the Legolo the Tunneler, you know, and... Going to the malware itself, right? So, so the first family I want to cover, right, in terms of like what it is and what its functionality is, is StarWhale. This is a Windows script file that basically needs to be executed uh, with a command line argument of humpback Whale, right? That's where it gets its name, like StarWhale. It uses this argument essentially to execute or resolve a function at one time. It is a simple backdoor with very you know, simple functionality, but it kind of uses this custom encoding routine where it does string manipulation on what it communicates with its C2 server, which again is a hard-coded IP address within this malware itself. It is one of the first malware that we observed uh, them using, Besides beside this, they, how they got in through using Screen Connect and some of the other tools that Ryan talked about. Uh, This was one of the ways they kind of initiated, right, the backdoor. And since this did not have a persistence mechanism built into it, it depended on the attacker to kind of execute it on the command line to kind of make it persistent through a service. So... What's interesting about this piece of malware is how it communicates with its C2, right? So as I mentioned earlier, it's using a custom encoding routine to obfuscate that network traffic, right? So it kind of does some string transformation and kind of sends the hexadecimals. So somebody looking at the traffic kind of doesn't know what's being sent back and forth. So that's Starwell, you know, a simple backdoor with a custom encoding scheme that it uses. And this is written in in a scripting language. So the next backdoor that we saw them drop was Starwell.go. And this is written in Golang, a different language, but it has similar design to StarWale. It does use a slightly different encoding mechanism with one less step when it communicates with its C2. So it's also hiding the traffic, but it has one less step in, in the complication, how it sends the network traffic. Uh, it also uses json objects to send the values back and forth whereas you know starwell was just using posting data right and it also uses the hard-coded ip address to to communicate with c2 but this piece of malware was packaged with with the nullsoft package right installer so it comes as a msi that the attackers downloaded using cert tool and then just ran it it does not have a persistent mechanism built into it but it's using the uh, no soft to do that no soft script to do that uh, and it does it using windows registry key run key which is pretty commonly observed
3: and were they using this variant this this uh, go variant in the same kind of period of the operation that they were using the first example of, of starwell that you saw or how was this kind of because you, know, you mentioned they seemed to have very similar functionality it's just you know built in a different uh, programming language some you know subtle changes here and there but what's your sense of of why they were using both of these side by side
1: yeah so they, they were deploying so we we saw three backdoors over so they were deploying these three right in like very similar manner in different times just to have more backdoors and a part of me thinks that they might be trying some of this malware out for the first time, because this, this is some of the families we're seeing for the first time. We haven't seen them before in the, in the wild. So my best guess here is they were trying out and they were putting in more backdoors, right? Which is typically what, you know, they never do one backdoor, right? These actors, they always implement a couple of different to establish foothold and come back. And even if one is removed, they have these other backdoors to depend on. So that's the Starwell and Starwell Go family of malwares. And then we saw them drop Gramdor, which is the, in my opinion, the most interesting piece of malware uh, because you know it uses Telegram bot API to communicate to with the infected host to kind of execute commands and get the data back. And the thing about this malware is like, you know, they're not using their own C2s, right? So they're using the Telegram servers to communicate back and forth. So the traffic kind of blends in and looks benign. It looks like normal user behavior or that. So that's GramDor. It's, it's written in Python, yet another language, right? Python 3.9 and packaged with PyInstaller, right? And then Nullsoft. So if somebody executes this, they don't need Python to be installed on the system. And Nullsoft kind of does this, you know, Making it make it persistent on the system, right? Uh, so it has some script in it that would make it persistent on the on the system. Gramdor uses a custom encoding routine, similar or actually the same one that Starwell was using, and it also encrypts some of its critical strings. So if you look at these three families of malware, they have a lot of similarities. Like they were built either by the same developer or the some of the developers shared the designs or worked together in some fashion to kind of come up with these uh, malware because they, they do have a lot of similarities within them, although they are written in different languages. There they are, they came obfuscated, like especially Starwale and Gramdoor. A lot of effort was made to make sure the code is obfuscated in a way so that it's not easily decipherable. And again, Star will also uses a command line argument, right, which is fed through the NSIS script or no source script uh, to kind of execute it.
3: With with the Gramdor piece of malware, um, this is an interesting, and this is obviously sort of the star of this whole story and report is the fact that they're leveraging this function within Telegram. But this is not uncommon when we look at threat actors and leveraging legitimate utilities and and applications and sort of, as you mentioned, trying to blend into legitimate network traffic that potentially wouldn't raise as many red flags. But when you look at it, you know, and and Emil, maybe you also and and Ryan have some thoughts on this too. But when you look at this in comparison to other families of malware that we've seen that we've leveraged other similar utilities, things like Slack, how does this sort of fit in in terms of the functionality that the threat actors are doing here? In comparison with this technique that you've seen elsewhere,
1: yeah. So you know, we have seen open source reporting talking about Iranian threat actors using Slack uh, Discord as their you know way to uh, communicate with the infected hosts. So it's not it's not that uncommon. And we have seen other threat actors use Telegram as well for their uh, botnets. Uh, so it's it's not uncommon to see that. I think with this specific. Piece of Gramdor malware i think this is more of an uh, testing or experimental phase right as they're doing with some of the other malwares maybe uh, so 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 to, to get back to your point right uh with with Gramdor, they are kind of seeing like how they can do this how does this work you know if we could use this for other campaigns so since this is the first time we're seeing this in this uh, engagement we don't really know you know what their thinking is here but it, it seems like they are, they're testing out this out.
3: And alongside these, these custom tools, you also have the utilization of Crack Map Exec, which I believe was a post exploitation tool that they had modified in some ways, but it's a tool that a lot of pen testers utilize. They were also using, I think, Ryan, you mentioned uh, Screen Connect early on for, for also some part of this operation. So they're leveraging some open source stuff in addition to the, their custom uh, tools.
0: Yeah, it was interesting to see this belt and suspenders type of approach of deploying multiple backdoors and multiple methods to accessing the environment uh, within this particular incident and then even within other incidents that have been documented recently and other security blog posts. So we had seen multiple backdoors being deployed, which kind of indicates that if you block one, there's still access to another one. And one of the reasons that we were able to isolate and contain this incident so quickly because we had the ability to contain systems altogether and isolate them from communicating with the internet. If we had gone to the approach of blocking domains, you know, from a network perspective, we easily could have missed something. So being able to programmatically isolate a system is the strength of being able to respond and isolate an attacker so quickly.
3: And Emil, I think you had a point uh, you were about to say earlier
2: i just wanted to speak to the uh the the nature of their tools a little bit as well you know like like ryan mentioned the the screen connects used for them has been well documented in in open sources and i think the one notable thing for me there is that despite all of those public blogs and reporting you know we've seen them see seen them use uh, two different remote access software uh sets in the last year or two and so despite those public blogs they still use it right so typically what you might see after a blog goes out is the actors drop their tools and retool and kind of start over. Um, But in this case, you know, it it kind of speaks to how effective the use of those legitimate tools. And in this case, the software uh, might be for, you know, initial compromise and lateral movement. I just thought that's really interesting that they um, otherwise are relatively sensitive to public disclosures. But in this case, uh, they just keep using it.
3: So I kind of buried the lead in this discussion, which is the actual nature and identity and attribution of these threat actors. Uh, but fail, you mentioned Iranian threat actors. Ryan, you know, this is an entity in the Middle East, so people are already probably on that track and, and guessing. And if you're listening to this podcast and you've already read the blog, you'll probably know where we end up. But Emil, walk us through the attribution of this, uh, this particular unk actor. One of the interesting things about this that you, describe, you know, publicly here in this blog is, we don't just have this unk actor, but this is an unk actor that we suspect is tied to a threat actor that, as you noted, has been discussed very publicly, people are probably familiar with, and that's the group Temp Sagro. So talk us through the, the whole attribution uh, piece of this.
2: Yeah, thanks, Luke. Absolutely. So the attribution part here was actually relatively, it was pretty fun. So it started for me in late October, early November, about two weeks before the intrusion that, that Ryan looked at started happening so we found one of those star whale samples in the wild and I I started looking at the malware myself and noticed that one of the uh, metadata entries for the office documents that were leading to these these macros right they had some values set to things that we saw from Tempsagros about two years ago and I thought that was an interesting overlap it was a relatively unique author value and so I, I wrote something on it internally and, and said, hey, this, you know, we can't attribute this to Temzagros, but it's an interesting overlap. And you know, until we get more information, we can't really go any further in our analysis. So two weeks later, then I get a ping from Tufayel and Ryan. And the malware was used in a government entity in the Middle East. And then we saw the entire toolkit kind of come together, where we had the previous reporting on Tempsagros, the muddy water activity that's been reported publicly. Right with the Screen Connect and the Legalo Tools and everything else that Tufil described earlier. And that's where the kind of puzzle pieces started falling in place. Where we saw the initial compromise with Screen Connect hosted on a OneDrive link, right? Delivered through a spear phishing message, the targeting lined up, the TTPs lined up. So that's when that UNC started building out. And we call it UNC 3313. We haven't attributed this fully to Tem Zagros, but the the overlaps there are notable to the extent that we can assess with moderate confidence that it's related to Temsagros. And so we base this on this overlap in TTPs that I mentioned earlier. And I mean, Temsagros itself is really a a very prolific threat actor, right? That as, as you pointed out, we assess to have ties to the Iranian government. And to speak to their general type of operations, right? Usually we see the type of intelligence collection operations that might go after government, telecommunication, defense, energy, finance, or technology entities. And Geographically, they've been active in, uh, in the United States, and Europe, but their primary focus seems to be in the Middle East and Central or South Asia. They've been active since about 2017. So we have a lot of various clusters that you know kind of relate to this Temsagros activity. And then one more thing I would want to note here is, is particularly notable recently is that the United States government publicly attributed what they call muddy water, which is largely the same as, as Temsagros, to the Iranian Ministry of Intelligence and Security we can't confirm that attribution independently at this point in time, but it would be safe to say that the group's operations would align and support a mandate that would come from, from that type of sponsorship. And, you know, specifically because threat actors like that might commonly target the entities that Tim targets, right? Telcos governments and the like, with the intent of collecting personally identifiable information on individuals and entities. Of interest, so this appears to be you know part of Temsakro's objectives in this case as well.
3: You already started talking about this a little bit, but for folks that are not as familiar with this group or with you know the rest of the pantheon of Iranian threat actors, how does this group fit within that? You know, looking at the capabilities, the targeting, the tenacity, all those different characteristics that we think of when we think of different threat actors, how does that fit and compare to other Iranian threat actors?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. It's hard to kind of put them on a scale of sophistication or advanced techniques, if, if you will, you know, depending on the terminology you want to use. But I would describe them as, as very prolific, and we can see they have, you know, a well-resourced crew on the other end of the keyboard, I would say, right? We see them using the open source tools. We see them using legitimate software, but then also the custom backdoors that Dufail described earlier. So they're very agile. They're very prolific. They... Kind of seem to evolve their operations from time to time from 2017 since we started tracking them they've used a variety of custom malware families but if we want to compare them to other iranian actors i would say that perhaps they're not the most advanced but they are certainly persistent and consistent in their operations and you know that their backdoors aren't as complicated as some of the ones that apd34 or others might use doesn't necessarily mean they're not successful right so that's kind of my takeaway on that
3: and this particular you know, entity where we, we saw them, this MD customer, not unsurprising in terms of this, this definitely fits within their pattern of targeting in terms of both regions and, and sectors they would go after.
2: Yes, absolutely. I, I think in this case, the organizations that this particular UNC, UNC 3313, has gone after uh, is pretty consistent with, with historical Temp operations.
3: Now, it's also interesting, uh, you know, if we think back to some of the, the more well known pieces of Temp Zagros malware mori agent PowGoop, group power stats was power stats one of one of theirs yes so we don't see any of that in this particular situation you mentioned that they are you know they're they're continuously developing and and iterating they seem to have that focus historically at least when you you look at them and to fail to to some of your points earlier you were noting that the usage of these different tools here in this this particular incident a lot of indication to potentially point to they are experimenting and, and trialing uh, things out. So again, not to you know try to draw too many extra, uh, extrapolations from this one singular incident, but do you think potentially we are seeing a shift in maybe sort of they're in an experimental phase? You noted they've also been talked about publicly. We're obviously putting out a blog about them publicly now. There's been some other uh, vendors and the government that's come out and report on some of their activity. You know, how does all that sort of in your mind wrap together in terms of explaining maybe some of what we're seeing from them now?
1: Yeah, so for one, like it, it shows that this group is, you know, still innovating, still growing, so to speak, in the cyber realm. This also seemed like they were trying out new tools in some aspect. Uh, for example, like I said earlier, now you haven't seen Gram- Gramdor used before starwell we've seen it started they started using it you know, as Emil pointed out in early parts of early to mid parts of October or November and this is this is you know this seems to be continuation of this trend of like you know evolving or innovating, and you know that targeting seemed very consistent, right like they are targeting pretty much the same region, the same type of organizations, you know governments, telecoms. For this specific group, right? On 3313, uh, we haven't seen them complete a mission, right? Because in this one, we kind of stopped them on their track as they were dumping the credentials, exporting the registries. We stopped them on track. So we, we don't know what their ultimate mission was in this case. We can make some inferences and in pass Temzagro's operations. But to me, it seemed like they were probably going after credential collection, right? They were trying to harvest credentials so they can either come back to this organization or kind of use these users as a proxy to get to other victims in other organizations. That's some scenarios that I can think of that why they are interested in, you know, this organization or these credentials, uh, because that's the only thing we've seen so far. I don't want to speculate anything, but it, to me, it seems like you know their the mission was to kind of get as many credentials as they can, and kind of uh, go from there on, right? To target other organizations. So, so that's that's kind of what I'm thinking right now of this campaign and this this group. But you know, if we see them more in missions that they complete, then we'll know what they're what they're going after. And one of the things that they they might be able to use. By targeting other organizations, is like get that information or intelligence that benefits the Iranian state, right? The Iran state. So they could be doing these operations for for that specific reason, right? For intelligence gathering and whatnot.
2: I definitely agree with, with you, Fail. There. Um, I, I would add that to the point of that, they're likely, we could assess perhaps that their operations are, are designed to collect intelligence in this case. Any credentials that that Dufil mentioned, we saw some other limited indications that they were going after other entities in the Middle East, and in those cases, the sectors span technology and telecommunications. So that that type of victimology would align with that assessment that
0: Dufil just described.
3: What's your take on, you know, because there's been more publicly that's been written about this threat actor of late, again, including this blog and this podcast that we're now doing. How they might respond to this, you know, which is always a, a question that comes up in, in the calculus of, as we talked about actually in the preparation of doing this podcast, you know, where where does that make sense? How much do you talk about that? One of the sort of humorous subplots in this story that you wrote in, in the blog sort of notes a spelling error that they had made in one of the earlier iterations when this was talked about publicly, and kind of they were apparently looking at individuals commenting on their work, they corrected that spelling error when that when that came to light. So at least some evidence that they're kind of paying attention to what security researchers are, are talking about with them. But any thoughts or or sense of where we could see this activity go with that being at least some part of, of their activity seems to be offset conscious, at least in, in terms of monitoring what, what folks are talking about with respect to them.
2: Yeah, I think that that subplot is is definitely really interesting. And we feel already detailed, you know, they're attempts to kind of blend in with legitimate traffic and, and that would fit in well with that kind of consideration for operational security. So it's not unsurprising to me to see threat actors be aware of public reports, uh, discussions on Twitter between security researchers, right. And kind of see whether they're being spotted or not, as an element of of how effective they can be. So in this specific case, like you mentioned, one of the earliest samples of Starwell we saw one of the strings in the malware as a response, I believe, to the command and communication server in certain instances of the behavior was sorry, but spelled with one R. And a researcher pointed this out on Twitter with a screenshot. And two days later, we saw another sample in the wild. And that had been fixed and now had two capital letter R's in the word sorry as a you can call it SAS, if you will, or just a, a message that says, hey, we we see that you're finding us or you know we're, we're aware um, of your visibility. So. That was certainly interesting. And I think that brings up the next question, right? And you, and you hinted at this too, is, is what's going to happen from here. I mentioned before, there's a lot of public reporting on this group recently. There was the U S government's public attribution of this group to a particular entity in Iran. So it, it's hard to obviously predict what's going to happen next. It's possible that they will disappear for a little bit and again, you know, retool, try to find some new methods to evade detection and start over. Maybe they'll have some limited continu- continuation of, of their operations, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see.
3: Any final thoughts, you know, looking back at this activity, the technical components of it, the, the targeting, the social engineering, I guess I, I forgot to mention here, the um, not uncommon amongst Iranian threat actors and, and others too. I think North Korea does this a little bit. The initial spearfish, I believe, Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong, was something related to like a job lure, job posting.
0: Yeah, it's what everybody wants to see in their mailbox: uh, information about an upcoming promotion. As far as the particular job Laura was successful, uh, interestingly, the sender of the phishing emails were three internal compromised user accounts. Uh, so that added a little bit more uh, legitimacy to the
3: fish. Oh, that's interesting. But yeah, any, any final thoughts on, on this the whole set of activity here and, and where this, you know, just takeaways that you guys have from this incident?
1: Yeah, I would say that, you know, I think they might go back to the drawing board, change a few things and go back to the talent pool and come up with new techniques and new malware in the future. But from the targeting perspective, I suspect they will, you know, they will continue or, to some extent, get more brazen, right? Maybe less disruptive unless they are retaliating against some geopolitical events. And I'm talking about like the Iranian actors in general. But but with this group specifically, I would say like they will continue targeting um, similar entities and with maybe some new tools, um, they will try to leverage open source as much as they can, maybe modify some of those tools. Uh, but yeah, and I think overall the security community is kind of doing a good um, in kind of highlighting their method techniques, and that's kind of what we are hoping to do with this blog as well—is kind of bring to front the some of the methods that they're using, some of the malware, newer malware they are using, and some of the other companies are doing the same thing. So you know, we can keep you know have have the customers. Or, you know, other companies protect themselves from, you know, or know about, you know, what are some of the techniques and malware that are being used and, you know, disrupt their operations or kind of make it harder for them, right, to every time create a new tool, right, to do an operation. So in a way, like impose costs, right, yeah, make them go back on the drawing board to kind of make it more painful for them, right, to to come up with the new ideas, new methods, so, so that's kind of the goal of this block, too, is right, to, to come out and talk about their malware and some of the methods that we have seen them use to basically protect the entities that they are trying to target.
0: Yeah, and I think that the level of sophistication exhibited by operators will increase or decrease to meet the challenge uh, of the operation. Uh, the use of op- uh, offensive security tools, the use of scheduled tasks, services, uh, registry keys, uh, just, you know, very lower level or very common as far as artifacts go with uh, instant response. So if an organization is tracking those particular artifacts, they too can detect uh, nation state level threat actors.
3: Well, kudos once again, not just to you guys as authors of this blog, but this as a joint project across multiple teams, managed defense to Intel, advanced practices, Flare, A lot of other folks that were involved in in getting this out, but great research. We will link in the show notes uh, for folks that are listening to this, to the blog itself. Go check that out. There's a lot more detail in there. There's some Yara rules. What else? I think and for for Mania Advantage customers, there'll be some validation packages around this as well for folks that are customers of that. So more resources to check out on the Mandiant website, the blog, and then also Mandiant Advantage the platform as well. But again, great job on this research. And this was a fascinating read, so definitely recommend folks check this out. Thank you very much, Luke. Take care.